Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The Biden administration's vaccine requirement for private businesses is going away. OSHA says it has decided to withdraw the mandate given the Supreme Court's decision. The FDA blocks the use of the two leading monoclonal antibody medicines for COVID-19, stating they don't work against the Omicron variant. An assistant professor of medicine explains the decision. As tensions rise, the White House today takes new action to deter Russia from invading Ukraine. The plan aims to control exports and to prevent a gas supply shortage in Europe. And a warning today from the International Monetary Fund that this conflict could cause high, higher energy costs and prolonged inflation. A U.S. Senator asks the Department of Defense to preserve what he calls alarming health data. It shows alleged spikes in miscarriage and cancer cases in the military. Vaccine safety is questioned. And another NYPD officer has died from the shooting in Harlem on Friday. A gunman opened fire on him and another officer when they responded to a domestic disturbance call. President Biden's vaccine mandate for private businesses with over 100 employees will officially end. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, says it will withdraw the mandate tomorrow. NTD's Allison Lee has the details. OSHA announced in the Federal Register on Tuesday that it will officially withdraw its vaccine requirement on Wednesday. The mandate would have required 80 million Americans in the private sector to either get vaccinated or undergo weekly virus tests and wear a mask at work. Multiple groups sued OSHA immediately after it announced the plan last November. The Supreme Court on January 13th blocked the mandate, saying that the plaintiffs are likely to prevail in court. A number of large companies halted their vaccine mandates following the Supreme Court ruling. OSHA also says it chose to withdraw the rule after evaluating the court's decision. But the agency says it continues to strongly encourage the vaccination of workers against the continuing dangers posed by COVID-19 in the workplace. Allison Lee, NTD News. And there's a dramatic reversal of New York State's indoor mask mandate. A state appeals court judge has just ruled to keep the mandate in place for now. Yesterday, a New York Supreme Court judge overturned the governor's mask mandate, ruling that the governor doesn't have the authority to implement it. Governor Kathy Hochul appealed the decision, and Judge Robert Miller agreed to halt the first judge's decision. This means the mask mandate is still in place while the case is appealed. The governor said in response that she applauds the appellate court's decision for, quote, siding with common sense and granting an interim stay to keep the state's important masking regulations in place. Hochul also said that she will not stop fighting to protect New Yorkers. The plaintiff's attorney has vowed to take the challenge as far as it needs to go, saying the appeals court judge made the wrong decision. And the Food and Drug Administration is now restricting the use of monoclonal antibody treatments for COVID-19. They say the data shows such treatments are highly unlikely to work against the Omicron variant. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. Now that the Omicron variant accounts for about 99% of cases in the United States, the FDA has blocked the two leading monoclonal antibody medicines. 
The two treatments, Eli Lilly and Regeneron, have been administered to millions of Americans to treat COVID-19. But the FDA says they don't work against the Omicron variant. Florida disagrees with the decision in the absence of clinical evidence. What the FDA is making clear is that these treatments, the ones that they are fighting over, that the governor is fighting over, do not work against Omicron, and they have side effects. That is what the scientists are saying. To date, such clinical evidence has not been provided by the FDA. But according to Dr. Roger Schultz, a pulmonologist and assistant professor at Loma Linda University, there is plenty of data to back up the FDA's decision. And remember back in November, Regeneron themselves actually put out a press release saying that they were concerned that their product would not bind uh, the Omicron variant very well. And, and actually, we actually have hard numbers and data now that's showing that the amount of antibodies that we have to give of these products to neutralize the virus is so high in the cases of Regeneron and Lilly that it's just not practically feasible to use these as medications in this case. Florida Surgeon General Dr. Joseph Lapido said in an interview on CBS 12 that using something like the Regeneron product or another monoclonal antibody is a better clinical decision than not giving that patient anything at all. That's because the risk is low. And with these options out of the picture, hospitals will be looking for other ways to treat COVID-19. Sometimes, a lot of times we get lost in the details, but there are some things that have been shown to be very effective for your overall health making sure you're eating a healthy diet, making sure that you're sleeping, getting outside with fresh air and getting plenty of sunshine as well. I think those are all things that we should also focus on as well. Both Regeneron and Eli Lilly both previously announced they are developing antibodies that target Omicron. Jason Perry, NCD News, New York. Almost two million service members have been vaccinated in the U.S. The federal government champions the vaccines, promoting them as safe and effective drugs. But a senator says he's gotten alarming data that has some disputing the safety of these vaccines. NTD's Miguel Moreno has that story. At a panel discussion on Monday, renowned and censored health experts such as doctors Peter McCullough and Robert Malone questioned the safety of COVID-19 vaccines. The panel's host, Republican Senator Ron Johnson, revealed that he's been given alarming military health data. The Department of Defense the Biden administration is on notice. They must preserve these records, and this must be investigated. Attorney Thomas Rents gave Johnson the leaked information, which allegedly shows roughly 300% increases in both miscarriages and cancer cases among service members, and a 1,000% increase in neurological issues, all last year's numbers compared to a five-year average. Renz told NTD he believes that the COVID-19 vaccines are causing these spikes, but the CDC recommends these drugs to pregnant women. One study it cites says that it didn't find obvious safety concerns among pregnant women and that more work is needed. The attorney says three military whistleblowers gave him the data. The Pentagon hasn't gotten back to us. During Monday's panel discussion, Renz named the whistleblowers, saying that all three signed declarations under penalty of perjury about the data, which he'll submit in court. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. U.S. funding to the World Health Organization dropped 25% in the two years of the pandemic compared with the previous two-year budget. Reuters has reviewed provisional WHO data that is not yet public. The provisional data shows that U.S. funding dropped by more than $200 million. 
It went from $890 million in 2018 and 2019 to $670 million in 2020 and 2021. Most of the de decline took place under the Trump administration. Former President Trump also moved to withdraw the U.S. from the WHO, accusing it of being too close to the Chinese regime. President Biden kept the U.S. in the organization and doubled the funding after taking office. He also pledged an additional $280 million in December. During the past two years, Germany overtook the U.S. as the biggest donor to the WHO. It gave the organization more than a billion dollars. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is the third largest donor. It gave the WHO $580 million over the past two years. And a warning today that the Russian-Ukraine conflict could cause higher energy costs and lingering inflation. The White House today took further actions to try and deter Russia from launching an attack. The Biden administration is threatening to use export controls to hurt Russian industries. And the U.S. is now working to locate non-Russian natural gas stockpiles to protect Europe from a gas supply shortage. NTD's Melina Weiskup has the latest details. The Russian-Ukraine conflict is far from our shores, but we could see higher energy costs because of it, along with lingering inflation. That's a warning from the International Monetary Fund today. And therefore, energy costs more broadly uh, for many countries uh, in the world. So in terms of uh, headline inflation numbers, that certainly could keep in headline inflation much more elevated for longer. The White House today announced they're working to locate non-Russian natural gas stockpiles. The administration says it's a plan to help avert a gas supply shortage in Europe in the case of a Russian attack. We're in discussion with major natural gas producers around the globe to understand their capacity and willingness to temporarily surge natural gas output and to allocate these volumes to European buyers. Russia supplies nearly half of Europe's natural gas, and some of it flows through Ukraine. To deter an attack, Biden is threatening to use export controls. We have no intention of putting American forces or NATO forces in Ukraine. But uh, we, I, as I said, there are going to be serious economic consequences if he moves. The proposed export controls would deprive Russia of semiconductor technology, a hard blow to Russian industries. This same method was used on China's Huawei last year, causing a sharp drop in their revenue. And in the face of joined NATO forces, China and Russia are tightening up their relationship. Today, Putin solidified his support for the Beijing Olympics. During the Beijing Olympic 2022 opening, we will meet with Chinese President Xi Jinping. We will set up new plans for collaboration. He's joining Chinese leader Xi Jinping in rejecting the diplomatic boycott led by some Western countries. The boycott is meant to condemn China for its ongoing genocide and human rights abuses. And the bond doesn't stop at the Olympics. The two countries are strengthening their military relations. Today, Russia and China began a joint naval drill in the western part of the Arabian Sea. U.S. troops are now on heightened alert. The Pentagon has around 8,500 troops that are ready for a possible deployment to Eastern Europe to protect Ukraine. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. A second New York City police officer has died of injuries from a shooting in Harlem last week. He and two other officers were responding to a domestic disturbance call. 27-year-old officer Wilbert Mora had been in critical condition after a gunman shot him and another officer on Friday. 
He was taken off life support at a Manhattan hospital four days after the shooting. The other officer, 22-year-old Jason Rivera, died on Friday. The officers were responding to a call by a woman who said she needed help with her adult son. They went to her apartment in Harlem, and the woman's son opened fire on them. A third officer later shot and killed the gunman. In a message announcing Moore's death, New York City Police Commissioner Keyshawn Sewell said, quote, The grief in this department is incalculable. We will stand, salute, and shed tears, yet manage to smile as we remember him during the extremely difficult days ahead. Six people were charged on Monday for allegedly smuggling high-powered firearms and huge quantities of ammunition to a Mexican drug cartel. They were busted during an investigation in Los Angeles. The Justice Department is charging six people for allegedly participating in a scheme to smuggle weapons and ammunition to one of the world's largest, most violent and dangerous transnational criminal organizations. Four people were arrested on January 19th during a Los Angeles strike force investigation. It targeted a domestic weapons trafficking organization that provides firearms and ammunition to the cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación, one of the largest and most violent drug cartels in Mexico. A total of six defendants were charged with a 23-count indictment for conspiring to violate federal export laws. Their ages range from 29 to 51 years old, mostly from California. If convicted, they can be sentenced to anywhere from 10 to 20 years in prison. The indictment alleges that a man from Whittier, California, who led the gun trafficking organization, used funds from narcotics to buy assault rifles, hundreds of thousands of rounds of ammunition, and numerous machine gun parts and accessories. Some had already been smuggled into Mexico, mostly since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. In a statement, U.S. Attorney Tracy Wilkinson said, We will continue our efforts to dismantle drug cartels by targeting their leadership as well as their soldiers, intercepting their narcotics and ill-gotten financial gains, and prosecuting those who provide the resources that allows the cartels to engage in acts of violence. 34-year-old Rafael Magallan Castillo is a fugitive believed to be in Mexico. Authorities are asking the public to help find him. General Motors announced plans today to spend nearly $7 billion to convert a factory that'll make electric pickup trucks and to build a new battery cell plant. It's the company's largest investment ever in its home state of Michigan. The move intensifies a battle with rival Ford Motor Company for EV supremacy in North America. GM announced the move on Tuesday in Michigan's capital of Lansing. The automaker plans to spend up to $4 billion converting and expanding its Orion Township assembly factory to make electric pickups. And it plans to spend another $1.5 to $2.5 billion to build a third U.S. battery cell plant with a joint venture partner in Lansing. It'll create up to 4,000 jobs and keep another 1,000 already in place at an underutilized assembly plant north of Detroit. Michigan's Economic Development Board on Tuesday approved $824 million in incentives and assistance for Detroit-based GM. The announcement is a critical win for Michigan. The state recently set aside $1 billion to land major business projects, and a large portion of that will go to the GM facilities. Last year, Michigan lost out on Ford Motor Company's $11 billion investment in three battery plants and a new vehicle assembly plant that went to Kentucky and Tennessee. GM and Ford are both vying for a larger share of the North American EV market. Both automakers, however, will have to contend with current leader Tesla, 
Tesla will soon open a second U.S. plant in Austin, Texas, and is on pace to sell more than one million electric vehicles globally in 2022. GM said its new plant will enable the company to build more than 600,000 electric trucks a year by late 2024. That, combined with three other plants, will bring the company's total North American EV production capacity to more than a million units by late 2025. GM also plans on building a fourth battery cell plant in the U.S., but the location for that project hasn't been announced. Ford said it will also have the annual capacity to build 600,000 electric vehicles within 24 months. It's aiming to become the clear number two electric vehicle maker in North America, behind Tesla. Today, administrators of the most widely used standardized test in America, the SAT, announced that the exam will soon be exclusively digital. That's in an attempt to address concerns over racial discrimination and decrease stress for students. NTD's Chenny Wu tells us more. If somebody you know is taking the SAT in two or more years, they won't need to bring their number two pencil anymore. The College Board announced Tuesday that the SAT standardized exam will be delivered digitally by 2024. Test takers will be allowed to use their own laptops or tablets or a school-issued device, but they'll still have to take the exam at a school or a test center with a proctor present, not at home. The announcement comes after College Board piloted the digital SAT in the U.S. and internationally. It found that 80 percent of students said they found it to be less stressful, and 100 percent of educators reported having a positive experience. And a digital test is not the only change in store. The College Board website says the test will be about two hours instead of three for the current SAT, with more time per question. Also, the reading passages will be shorter with only one question tied to each, and calculators will be allowed on the entire math section. Priscilla Rodriguez, vice president of College Readiness Assessments at College Board, said the digital SAT will be easier to take, easier to give, and more relevant. The change comes amid criticism that the exams favor wealthy white applicants and disadvantage minority and low-income students. That's partly because poor and minority students may not have access to expensive test preparation classes. An increasing number of schools, including Harvard and Columbia, have in recent years adopted test-optional policies, which let students decide whether to include scores with their applications. Chenny Wu, NTD News. Over the weekend, Shen Yun Performing Arts toured in four different cities in America and Europe. Among the audience members were government officials who said they appreciate the positive energy the performance brought to their city. Here's more. Thank you, thank you, thank you for an incredible show. Today was not just a show of beauty. It was a show of cultural enrichment. Over the weekend, Shen Yun Performing Arts delivered over 10 performances in four different cities across the U.S. and Europe. The mayors of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and Greeley, Colorado issued proclamations to the performers. It was beautiful in many ways, um, and I think that the more people that would see that, they would be inspired. Because it was such a positive uh, message that was given. Congressman Ken Buck of Colorado watched the final performance in Greeley. Oh, it's, it's really heartwarming. It was a beautiful performance, beautiful dance, and, and the music was beautiful. Um, but I, what I really loved about it was the, 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 the cultural uh, aspect, how the uh, Chinese culture was displayed and accepted by the audience. 
Um, I really felt uh, that it was a special moment here to, to see that. He says Shen Yun's positive messages can uplift people's spirits, especially in the midst of a pandemic. Because we are uh, challenged right now with the pandemic and because we're challenged um, in other ways, there are very serious matters going on in the world and there are uh, serious uh, issues here at home. And I think people are depressed and, and really uh, searching for something positive. And this uh, performance was very positive and, and uplifting. I really enjoyed the power of overcoming, that method of overcoming the whole situation where you never give up. It's thought-provoking. Mayor Ganey says he appreciates Shen Yun's mission to bring back the China before communism. And what you've seen in there is the divine, in, the divine entity that you brought up in regards to China never should be destroyed. Matter of fact, it should be celebrated because it's the birthstone of civilization and how it started. So when we talk about that divine being, when we talk about the history, we talk about the culture, no one can grow if they don't know it. So I'm glad that you presented it today. You use your divine inner spirit to continue to grow even in the midst of adversity. That came through large, and I really appreciated that message. In Poland, the mayor of Torun and the marshal of Kuyave Pomerania province came to see the performance. The coordination of their movements on stage, themselves coordinated with the beautiful music, gave the impression that the performance was floating in the air. These performances cannot be shown in China. I hope that Shenyun's performances and determination, whether in New York, the United States, in Europe, or around the world, will bring back normalcy to China. We wish them luck. Because of high demand, organizers added one more show in Poland. Coming up, a police officer saves the life of a choking three-year-old. At least body cam footage captures the dramatic rescue. Some California officials are encouraging residents to donate blood. American Red Cross provides a lot of blood donations each year, but there's been a decline for some time now. And in the NBA, it's Michael Jer Jordan versus LeBron James, best-ranked players of all time. How do they compare when their career numbers are scrutinized? We're in a moment here on NTV. On Monday, LAPD released body cam footage of an officer rescuing a choking child. Though the footage may be disturbing to some viewers, the girl was sent to the hospital in stable condition. Police body cam footage capture the dramatic moments of an officer resuscitating a choking child. First of all, when he approached me with her, she was really, the color was really pale. She wasn't uh, reacting or any way. She was just slumped over his arms. On the evening of January 19th, in Los Angeles, a father rushed towards an officer with his unconscious daughter in his hands. Open something came out. Something came out. The LAPD sergeant called for backup and found something in the girl's throat, causing her to choke. He performed a finger sweep and back thrust, dislodging the object. All of LAPD personnel um, is given or provided with first aid training. And there's, I believe, biannual or every two years we have a training update for first aid. Um, and it's, it's an extensive course, um, but we're able to, uh, able to help out because we are first responders. It is t time consuming, but you know, I, I believe that, you know, the training that the LAPD provided uh, definitely helped in this case. Mommy, ah, open up. 
The girl was awake within moments. LAPD said the fire department took the child to Children's Hospital Los Angeles, where she was treated by medical staff and listed in stable condition. The American Red Cross says they supply 40% of the nation's blood supply. And the Red Cross is encouraging Californian residents to donate. NTD's David Lamb reports. A Red Cross chapter in California said on Tuesday morning that it will take a while for the blood supply to recover. Los Angeles County hospitals have faced depleted blood supplies amid the Omicron surge and flu season. On January 11th, the American Red Cross declared the blood crisis as the worst blood shortage in over a decade, posing a concerning risk to patient care. The Harbor UCLA Medical Center's trauma center had to stop accepting new patients for over two hours earlier this month due to insufficient blood supplies. A director with the LA County Emergency said a closure like that had never happened in the past 30 years in the county. LA County officials are urging residents to donate blood. Amid this crisis, doctors had to decide which patients receive blood transfusions and who will have to wait. Since March 2020, there has been a 10% decline in blood donations and a 62% drop in college and high school blood drives was due to the pandemic. Reasons may include illness, weather-related closures, and staffing limitations. The American Red Cross is partnering with the NFL to encourage blood donations. For the remainder of this month, Anyone who donates blood will have a chance to win two Super Bowl tickets in Los Angeles next month. David Lamb, NTD News, California. The San Jose City Council is set to vote on a gun control law Tuesday night. If passed, it would be the first of its kind in the nation. The law would tax gun owners and require them to carry liability insurance. San Jose City Council will vote on the evening of January 25th on a new ordinance targeting gun owners. Gun owners would need to carry liability insurance, as well as pay a $25 annual fee to fund public gun violence reduction programs. According to the San Jose government website, this fund would make San Jose the first city in the nation with such gun violence reduction proposals. More than 200 San Joseans every single year suffer death or serious injury as a result of firearms. The proposed ordinance is based on research from the Pacific Institute for Research and Evaluation, published last November. The research reported an average of 58 gun-related deaths per year in San Jose. The new ordinance was first proposed in June 2021, after the Bay Area's largest mass shooting at the Valley Transit Authority rail yard in San Jose. Opponents to the ordinance have warned of litigation. Dudley Brown, president of the National Foundation for Gun Rights, sent a cease and desist letter to the city last July. He said he would protect the Second Amendment rights of San Jose residents. If the new legislation is passed, all gun owners in San Jose will have to carry liability insurance and pay fees beginning August 8th. Michael Jordan versus LeBron James. Who's better? It's the endless argument that NBA fans can't agree on and yet can't get enough of. But one prominent NBA statistician has used his own mathematical formula for years to rank the greatest players in NBA history. NTD's Dave Martin has more. Dave Heron started attending NBA games when he was just a kid, during the NBA's second season back in 1947. After graduating from college in 1961, he became team statistician for the New York Knicks. By then, his 10x formula had come to mind a complex mathematical way to rank NBA players. But I think really this has to do more with logic than math. It combines the two because you can 
put up all kinds of arithmetic, and it doesn't mean anything unless it makes sense. The Tendex formula eventually included all kinds of factors such as game pace, strength of schedule, minutes played, as well as position played. In the beginning, it was just five little numbers, then it became 10 and then 15. By the 1980s, Heron's ratings were so popular that plagiarizing them had become commonplace. Meanwhile, the NBA and eventually European leagues were officially using Heron's ratings, sometimes with adjustments. He was not counting free throws as minus one, because he was counting them only, I think, minus a half. And I asked him, well, why? And he says, well, we're protecting Shaq. And I said, well, why, do you, why does the best player in the world need your protection? So who does Heron's ratings have as the best player? His latest book, titled 75, ranks the 75 greatest players of all time. In it, Heron has four players bunched at the top. Jordan at four, then LeBron, Will Chamberlain, and surprisingly, Oscar Robertson at number one. It shows that Tendex is no, no partisan because you've got two guys that are recent and two guys that go way back. Heron's book also includes inside stories of how the Celtics schemed to get Larry Bird, how the Lakers illegally protected Magic Johnson on defense, and how assists were counted differently in Los Angeles. Dave Martin, NTD News, New York. Coming up, the Australian Open is retracting its ban on Peng Shui t-shirts. The reversal comes after the ban received backlash from the tennis community and Australian politicians. Chinese telecom giant Huawei is paying big money to American lobbyists in an effort to lessen the impact of U.S. sanctions. During the past six months, one Washington power broker reportedly received $1 million from the company. And moviegoers react to a film that digs into one of Beijing's biggest human rights persecution campaigns. The story is based on real-life events. That and more after the break. One million dollars in six months. That's what Huawei paid a veteran lobbyist for his service. And he's one of half a dozen lobbyists on Huawei's list trying to influence the White House. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has the story. A lobbyist for Chinese tech giant Huawei reportedly took home a significant paycheck over the past half year, totaling one million dollars. Federal disclosures reveal Tony Podesta took home the payment for his work in lobbying the White House. The company paid Podesta half a million in just a fourth quarter last year. According to a disclosure form, the lobbying targeted the executive office of the president and centered around telecommunication services and impacted trade issues. Huawei was put under U.S. trade sanctions under the Trump administration. A disclosure form filed last week shows Podesta was compensated $1 million in total over a six-month period for his work. Huawei has faced international scrutiny in recent years. The U.S. has flagged the company as a national security threat, referring to its close ties with the Chinese communist regime. That's on top of its role as a suspected espionage tool for Beijing. A stream of U.S. sanctions since 2019 have barred Huawei from using U.S. technology and have blocked its equipment from being used in critical U.S. infrastructure. All in all, the penalties have slashed the company's annual revenue by one-third. 
What's more, the Biden administration further tightened those measures at the end of last year, restricting Huawei from receiving new equipment licenses from U.S. regulators. To help recover from those impacts, Huawei seems to have ramped up its U.S. influence operations. According to disclosure filings, Podesta is one of a half-dozen lobbyists the company hired since July 2021. Filings show Huawei spent over $3.5 million on U.S. lobbying efforts last year, nearly eight times as much as the year before. The Australian Open is walking back its ban on T-shirts that show support for Chinese tennis star Peng Shuai. The reversal follows backlash from politicians and athletes. Last Friday, a group of fans arrived at a match wearing matching T-shirts, all bearing the words, Where is Peng Shuai? They later held up a banner with the same phrase. Peng Shuai disappeared from public view for months after accusing a top Chinese Communist Party official of sexual assault on social media. Authorities soon approached the group of tennis fans, confiscating the banner and instructing them to change out of the T-shirts. They explained the Australian Open's organizers don't allow political slogans at the tournament. The Australian Open does have a rule that there can't be any political slogans. And I'm not, I'm not saying you can't have those views, but I am saying that Tennis Australia sets the rules here. But the decision was met with swift backlash. Tennis legend Martina Navratilova called the decision to silence the fans pathetic. I find it really, really cowardly. This is not a political statement. This is a human rights statement. Former world number one in tennis doubles, Nicholas Mahu wrote on Twitter that the move shows a lack of courage. Australia's defence minister also chimed in. I think it's deeply concerning and I think we should be speaking up about these issues. Uh, and on Tuesday, organiser for the Australian Open, Tennis Australia reversed the ban. Its chief executive, Craig Tilley, told the Associated Press that it is okay for people to wear the Peng Shui shirts, as long as they don't gather in large groups or cause problems. Worth noting, one of the Australian Open's main sponsors is a Chinese liquor company. Organizers said the 2018 deal was the largest agreement with a Chinese company in the history of the tournament, valued at around $100 million. An award-winning movie is bringing audiences to tears across the country. It captures the story of a jaded American reporter and a team of innocent students as they risk everything to expose the Chinese Communist Party's deadly propaganda. NTD's Juliet Song has more on the big screen release. More than 10,000 Falun Gong practitioners protested peacefully in Beijing, China. The movie is based on true events. It follows the story of Wang, a student at a top university in China. Wang practices Falun Gong, a spiritual meditation discipline that teaches the principles of truthfulness, compassion and tolerance. But overnight, Wang finds himself an enemy of the state. That's after Beijing launched a national suppression campaign against the practice. As Beijing ramps up the persecution campaign and turns out propaganda to defame Falun Gong practitioners, Wang meets Daniel, an American reporter struggling to find meaning in his profession. Together, they're faced with a choice, to tell the truth, risking their careers or even lives, or stay silent. The government has 
conducting one of the largest scale propaganda campaigns in history. You just want to wait for it. What are you going to do? Walking to the prison and demand to see him? Cloud China exposed their lies to the world. In Delaware, State Senator Dave Lawson gave his take on the film. Shocked, amazed, uh, certainly felt that I was way behind in what was going on when this started in 1999 and now 23 years later, uh, this is now just coming out. I'm embarrassed I didn't know more. In Los Angeles, one moviegoer says she had to hold back tears. All these people that are being persecuted and are victims in China and anywhere else under a totalitarian regime. We just want to let them know that we are going to be praying for them. Another audience member says even though the movie made him sad about rights abuses happening in China. I think it was also the mission of the film is to make you feel somewhat hopeful that there is redemption, that at the end of the day there is some hope if we fight for what's right. He says he hopes more people can build their courage and stand up for what's right. I really hope that, that they find it into them, in, the, in themselves, like that character who's willing to sacrifice his family, his child, his wife, in order to stand up for what's right. That's a very difficult choice to make. It's much more comfortable to stay where you are and to be silent and to, and to continue to do what you do and just go along with the, with the story. But to find it in yourself, to stand up and do what's right, we all have to do that adding that if people are willing to speak out, they can make a change. The movie is premiering in 30 cities from the east to west coast. That includes New York, Washington, D.C., and California. Juliet Song, NTD News. Coming up, as calls grow louder for British Prime Minister Boris Johnson to resign, there's growing speculation over who might take his position. And the Greek capital is paralyzed after a snowstorm cuts power, disrupts public transportation, and leaves thousands trapped in their cars. That and more here on NTD News. A vote of no confidence in British Prime Minister Boris Johnson could be triggered if 54 Conservative politicians submit letters of no confidence. With an increasing number of politicians openly saying they want the Prime Minister out, there is growing speculation over who might take his position. This report comes from NTD's Jane Werrell. There's a lot of speculation around who might have their eye on the coveted spot at number 10. While it looks like Sue Gray's report into Partygate won't be published this week as expected, last week was another difficult Prime Minister's questions for Boris Johnson, with former Brexit Secretary David Davis calling for his resignation. In the name of God, go. Plus, he's faced allegations over firing Nisrat Ghani from her ministerial position in 2020. She says a government whip told her she was sacked because of her Muslimness. And accusations from MP William Bragg that his colleagues have been blackmailed into supporting the Prime Minister. The reports of which I'm aware would seem to constitute blackmail. As such, it would be my general advice to colleagues to report these matters to the Speaker of the House of Commons and the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. And they're also welcome to contact me at any time. 
A vote of no confidence in Boris Johnson could be triggered by 54 Tory MPs submitting letters of no confidence. If half of his own MPs vote against him in a subsequent vote, he'd be gone and a Conservative leadership contest would be launched. The two names we often hear as potential leadership contenders are Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss regularly tops polls for Conservative members, a former Remainer who's championed Brexit. Chancellor Rishi Sunak, who launched a £400 billion rescue package for Covid, he has presided over the highest tax burden in 70 years, though insists he's a low-tax Conservative. Others include Jeremy Hunt, who was head-to-head -head with Johnson in the last leadership contest, and Health Secretary Sajid Javid. The last no-confidence vote in Parliament was in December 2018, when MPs angry with Theresa May's Brexit policies triggered a no-confidence vote. She survived that vote, but she resigned five months later. For Boris Johnson, he's got a long list of difficulties. Amid them, we see Christian Wakefield, the Conservative MP, defect to Labour. Many of his own MPs do support him. Jacob Rees-Mogg earlier said that it's an honour to serve under him. Boris Johnson, though, is expected to face more challenges to his leadership in the next Prime Minister's questions. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. UK travel firms are reporting a surge in bookings for foreign vacations following a decision to drop testing and self-isolation requirements for people arriving in England. From February the 11th, fully vaccinated travellers arriving in England or Scotland will no longer need to take a Covid test. Those who are not fully vaccinated will no longer need to self-isolate, but they will need pre-departure and day two tests. The airline and tour operator run by Jet2 reported a notable increase in demand for holidays and flights after the policy was revealed on Monday afternoon. Chief Executive Steve Heapy said customers are jumping at the chance to book their flights and holidays. Traditional holiday hotspots like Spain, Italy and Portugal are all proving popular with customers. The managing director at tour operator TUI says he expects holiday bookings this summer to be back to pre-pandemic levels. In France, charity associations say government measures to quell the pandemic have created a situation where students can't find work and sometimes don't have enough to eat. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has this report. Despite the progressive lifting of restrictions, the situation for French students doesn't seem to be getting any better. Christian Lampin is spokesperson of charity association Secours Populaire. The association helped to give out food to around 3 million people in France in 2021 and also provided support for lodging and other needs. He says students were the group most impacted by Covid measures. Regarding young people that came to seek help, it was like a tsunami. Sometimes it was about just giving food to them so that they can fill their fridges. Besides the food, we also saw that there was a lot of distress. He says that usually students can find ways to help themselves and eventually the parents help. But due to lockdowns and travel restrictions, some students were left to fend for themselves. Although the lockdown has been lifted, the difficulties are still there. This food distribution center had a queue spanning several streets last year and this year it's getting longer. We contacted the charity to understand why. The spokesperson said the ordered closure of restaurants, bars and childcare services heavily impacted the economy during lockdown. And these employers typically hire students, 
Lampin confirmed this. When you know that one out of two students work to finance their university fees, no job, no solution, it's very complicated for them. We have seen 40% more students, these people we'd never seen before, students that belong to the middle class. According to a president of a student association, middle-class students are left in an even more challenging situation as they are unable to access grants. David Duves, NTD News, Paris. In Greece, the army and rescue crews are scrambling to clear roads and free hundreds of drivers trapped on a major highway in Athens. This after a snowstorm hit the Greek capital on Monday, disrupting traffic and causing power cuts in the broader region. NTD's Earl Rhodes has more on this. Citizens of Athens on Tuesday woke up to a rare sight. The Greek capital and its ancient monuments under a thick carpet of snow. While some enjoyed it, the army and rescue crews scrambled to clear roads and to free hundreds of drivers trapped on a major highway that runs across Athens and connects the Greek capital with the city's international airport. This after a massive cold front and snowstorm hit much of Greece, leaving countless people and vehicles stranded overnight in freezing conditions. We can't spend another day here. We have to figure out how to get out of here and go home. Rescue crews evacuated 3,000 people by early Tuesday. Some drivers abandoned their cars and walked home. Greece's climate change minister apologizing. As a state, we owe an apology to everybody that has suffered or is suffering right now. There's a titanic effort underway by the fire department and the traffic police to free the drivers stranded on the Attiki Odos ring road. According to the Prime Minister's office, the motorway is to pay compensation for each stranded vehicle. Authorities asked the public to limit non-essential travel. Trains and bus services in the capital were suspended. State services, vaccination centres, schools and non-essential shops in the wider Athens region shut. Parts of Athens were hit by power cuts. Heavy snowfall also brought operations at Istanbul Airport, Europe's biggest, to a standstill. On Monday, Turkey's flag carrier Turkish Airlines said it had cancelled all flights from Istanbul Airport as the airport closed operations. Turkish authorities declared administrative leave for all public institution personnel on Tuesday to decrease mobility. The storm is forecast to end on Wednesday. Earl Rhodes, NTD News. And from snowstorms to a historic heat wave in Brazil, where crowds of people flocked to Rio's iconic beaches. Cities like Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro in Brazil are roasting. Temperatures have exceeded 100 degrees Fahrenheit over the past few weeks. The heat wave is also affecting neighboring countries Argentina, Uruguay and Paraguay. In these South American nations, important crops such as soybeans are at risk. Prolonged drought and low river levels have significantly impacted the harvest. Fortunately, rain is forecast for the weekend in Rio, which should help cool things down. And coming up, the Blue Boy by British painter Thomas Gainsborough will be on display in London for the first time in 100 years. 
One woman dares to do the nearly impossible under the most difficult of circumstances, sailing across the Atlantic Ocean while battling incurable cancer. More to follow here on NTD News. London welcomes one of the world's most iconic old master paintings for a limited run at the National Gallery. The Blue Boy by British painter Gainsborough left the gallery a century ago, leaving behind a saddened British public. NTD's Neil Woodrow attends the opening in London. The Blue Boy by Thomas Gainsborough returns to the National Gallery 100 years since it was sold to American railway magnate Henry E. Huntington. It's set, among other work, by Gainsborough and paintings by Sir Anthony van Dyck, whom Gainsborough admired and emulated. The painting had become world famous by 1921 and sold for a record sum. It was in January the following year that it began its journey to the United States, leaving behind a saddened British public. At the time, shortly after the First World War, reviewers made the analogy between the grief over lost youth on the Western Front, followed by yet another loss, that of the Blue Boy. The painting found its home at the Huntington Library, Art Museum and Botanical Gardens in California and has never been sent out on loan since, until now. Christina Nielsen, director of the Art Museum at Huntington, says it's unlikely to happen again. This is the only time we've considered lending it seriously. We've just finished a two-year conservation project. We know that the painting is in great condition um, and, and visually looks spectacular. So 100 years to the day, we have him back on view for the public in the UK and we're thrilled to be doing so. Nielsen says the Blue Boy has become one of the most beloved old master paintings in America. We receive about a million visitors a year and virtually everyone who comes to the Huntington makes a beeline to see the Blue Boy. This full-length portrait was created during Gainsborough's time in Bath between 1759 to 74, a period when the artist's style and practice changed dramatically. Christine Riding, the curator of the exhibition, talks about this influential time of Gainsborough's life. And there's this great moment when um, the likes of Van Dyke were kind of revealed to him through uh, private collections and that absolutely is the case in a very famous group painting, enormous work of art by Van Dyck at Wilton House does seem to have been a real lightning rod for so many um, artists of the period. Riding says Van Dyck could represent the human form and give it an innate sense of authority of power. Exactly the same thing happens in the Blue Boy. It's paired right down to the figure with this idyllic landscape in the background. Who knows where that is? And suddenly you're really focusing on this figure and you're focusing on the pose, the expression, such as you do have with Van Dyck. But equally, you're looking at the brushworks. So it's, it's a performance both in ter terms of the figure, but it's a performance in terms of the artistry, in terms of the paint paintiness of it. The identity of the Blue Boy was never known, which Riding says has allowed the painting itself to wander through the centuries and be of inspiration to subsequent artists. You have until May 15th to come and admire the original and much copied work. Neil Woodrow, NTD News, London. 
One British rower with incurable cancer has rowed across the world's second largest ocean, shattering the world record and proving that even the nearly impossible is possible. NTD's Chenny Wu brings us this story. British rower Kat Cordiner was diagnosed with cervical cancer in 2019. And after several bouts of intensive treatment, chemotherapy and operations, is now in remission. Cordiner said, the doctors have told me I don't have decades, I have years, so I really want to make the most of them. I don't want to muck around doing stuff that doesn't matter. I want to do things that are challenging and fun. Despite these difficult circumstances, Cordiner and her two teammates set a new record for the female trio record in the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. The trio clocked a winning time of just over 42 days for the 3,000-mile crossing, shaving seven days off the previous record set in 2019. The woman raised money for Cancer Research UK, Macmillan Cancer Support and the Royal Marsden Cancer Charity. They had to battle scorching heat, waves, sleep deprivation, hand blisters and calluses, as well as sharks during the brutal feat. Cordiner is believed to be the first person to take on the challenge as a cancer patient. Chenny Wu, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.